Chapter 9 of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 9 Seraveza. Seraveza, August 15, 1865. In one of the valleys of the marble district of the Apennines lies the little village of Seraveza. The rivers Serra and Veza, threading their way between the mountains, suddenly bend and unite, and the village built upon their banks, at the point of union, takes the combined name of both rivers. The mills belonging to the marble quarries are worked by the waters of these rivers. They are narrow streams that gracefully wind in and out, now gliding smoothly and now leaping over rocks and forming unexpected cascades. The banks are richly wooded, and here and there the trees dip into the stream. The verdant mountains start up, almost perpendicularly. On either side, the green of their chestnut, fig, and olive leaves, often suddenly interrupted by slides, as they are called, of gleaming white marble. The little village of Serraveza is quaint and primitive, but picturesque in a high degree. It is composed of a mere cluster of houses planted together in a narrow strip along the banks of the river and girdled in by the mountains yet it has a somewhat imposing little church with the duomo and the campanile adorned within by pictures and statues of no small merit beside the church stands a hospital a large commodious building endowed by cavallere campagna the constant accidents in the mountains and in the quarries render this admirably conducted hospital a most important institution every day its doors admit some poor sufferer whose limbs have been crushed by a fall of marble or who has met with some other disaster inseparable from his vocation at the head of the valley commanding a superb prospect stands the villa of the medici a favorite resort of the late grand duke situated in this small secluded peaceful-looking one cannot help wondering to see this unpretending-looking villa well provided with portholes for cannon as if attacks of an enemy were at all times anticipated a subterranean passage runs for a mile beneath the mountain and leads from the villa to the seashore here the Medici always kept a vessel prepared for their escape. The villa has spacious stables with accommodations for 36 horses, also a chapel, and a large garden surrounded by massive stone walls. Close by is a marble quarry, which belonged to this noble family. The property of the Medici is now held by the government of Victor Emmanuel, the town authorities of Serravesa express great discontent because no title deed proves that the ground upon which the Medician villa stands 
has ever been paid for. Victor Emmanuel offers the villa for sale. That the authorities may receive the price they demand for the land, the villa, it is said, costs between thirty and forty thousand dollars to build. It is offered for sale for eight thousand. In the center of the village stands a stone column, out of which rises an iron spike, placed there to receive the gory head of the decapitated traitor. Doubtless before Tuscan law forbade capital punishment, it has often been capped by this ghastly adorning. The little village, small and obscure as it is, boasts of its men of genius, or rather, of embryo genius. It may be the close proximity to the marble, or that the vocation of stone earth is one low step in the ascent to high art, but among these stone-cutters there is a small band aspiring to become sculptors, making uncouth attempts to cut figures in stone, hideous apes, wild beasts, and other ungraceful forms. But from among these rude essays, some beautiful creation will no doubt one day spring beneath the hand of genius yet undeveloped. And Cerevesa boasts of a musical genius, a young man of twenty years, occupied in the iron foundry, who composes and improvises music in the most wonderful manner. He is self-taught. The only instrument he could afford to purchase is an accordion, but listening to him as he played beneath our window the other evening, it seemed absolutely incredible that the instrument from which he was drawing such touching strains, now so strong and full, now so meltingly sweet and echoing, so deliciously varied, could have been but a simple accordion. The Seravesa has her decayed actor, once the representative of Roman emperors and Greek kings, but who now, in the sere and yellow leaf of his life, condescends to keep an allegro, or inn, we could hardly venture to designate the humble locality as a hotel. This dramatic satellite amuses his patrons, not merely by reciting passages from celebrated plays, but often by going through whole tragedies, admirably personating each character in turn. His declamation is remarkable for its power and pathos, and though he is quite an old man, his gestures have an eloquent grace peculiar to the Italian. The native poet, or improvisatore, we learn, is often to be met with here. And surely, if there is one spark of poetic fire in the breast, it must be fanned into life by the grandeur and the beauty of these glorious mountains. Albeit the scenery of the Apennines, in these regions, though different in character, is as grandly beautiful as that of the finest portions of Switzerland, strange to say, the latter is flooded with tourists while these picturesque Apennine peaks, only three hours' journey by railroad from Florence, are scarcely visited. The Pagna, the highest of the range, is reached after six hours' climbing, starting from Cerevesa. From its summit, 
the whole coast of the Mediterranean, from Spezia to Leghorn, is visible via Reggio, Leghorn, Pisa, and even Florence can be distinctly seen. The latter is 60 miles distant. A natural bridge connects two of the mountains at their very peaks, 5,000 feet above the level of the sea. The bridge is a narrow stone ledge, its arch 160 feet high. It is called the Madonna's Bridge, and the Contadini implicitly believe the tradition that the Madonna, in passing over these mountains, desired to step from one peak to the peak adjoining, when immediately the stone formed itself into a bridge, barely wide enough to permit her dainty feet to walk over in safety. Some of the marble quarries are several thousand feet above the level of the river. A few of them are near the very topmost peaks of the mountains. The marble is blasted in the mountains, then cut into square blocks, then hurled over the side of the mountain, upon a marble slide, down which it makes its way with tremendous bounds, the whole mountain echoing with the roar, while smaller pieces of marble, with which it comes in contact in its frantic descent, leap into the air, sometimes to the height of sixty feet, enveloped in a cloud of snow-white marble dust. The slide of marble leads from the quarry to the valley. Across this slide, at various distances, are erected walls of marble, which give the block the direction required and cause it to fall upon the ground in the valley, upon the exact place prepared, and where it can be reached by ox carts. Near each quarry are the marble works of the proprietors, large, handsome buildings, looking like railway stations, where all the process of sawing the marble and polishing it is accomplished by water power. The marble is taken in ox carts to the Forte di Marma, four miles from Cerveza. In calm weather, the oxen are driven, most unwillingly, into the sea to the boats. When the weather is too boisterous for them to be forced into the water, the small vessels in which the marble is to be conveyed to Leghorn are drawn upon the beach and they are loaded. The ox carts are then fastened to the boats and the oxen, sometimes fourteen pairs at a time, urged into the sea. The marble-laden boat is thus launched. At the Forti de Marma, the whole beach, for a quarter of a mile, is white with blocks of marble, marble columns, pedestals, slabs, flooring, looking, at first glance, like an endless city of monuments. At this moment are to be seen upon the beach the columns, steps, flower vases, and various decorations in colored marble destined for the new opera house now being erected at Paris. This beach is one of the most beautiful we have ever had the great enjoyment of walking upon. When the tide is low, the sand is smooth and firm to the foot. On one side stretches the blue Mediterranean, far as the eye can reach, and, parallel with the shore, on the other side, rises the Apennine chain in all its majestic beauty. And, if picturesque charm of the scene can be heightened, we have seen it brought to perfection beneath the superb Italian sunset, 
flooding the heavens with indescribable glory, while a crowd of lovely laughing girls and merry children sported upon the beach and dived and danced and gambled in the shining water. But to return to the marble quarries. The smaller blocks of marble are split at the quarries into slabs, and these slabs are carried to the beach upon the heads of women. Some women are able to carry four marble slabs upon their head at a time, and this over the roughest, steepest, and most difficult mountain paths. This severe and unfeminine labor earns these poor toilers for bread rarely as much as a franc, about twenty-two cents per day, and never more. The habit of holding the head erect and poising the body as they step causes these women to move with a firm and graceful grandeur of step and motion, which would throw into despair the representative of our stage queens. The genuine queens are too seldom queenly in gait to be mentioned. If they could behold and then study the regal carriage of these poor carrier peasants. One of the favorite pastimes of little children is to imitate their mothers, pile cakes of mud or stones, supposed to be marble slabs, upon their head, then holding themselves erect and steady, fold their arms upon their breast, and step from stone to stone in the bed of the river, balancing themselves dexterously, and moving with that grand step of the mother as she descends the mountain paths. At Cerveza, there are quarries of variously colored marbles, and the scientific agriculturalist may interest himself by investigating a fact which has excited the curiosity and surprise of visitors. The peculiar coloring of the different marbles appears to be repeated in the beans that grow in the valley. There is a pink marble with black veins, and there are pink beans with the same veining. There is bluish marble with spots, and there are beans to match greenish marble and beans of precisely the same hue of green by no means the ordinary green of a bean the yellow marble has its yellow bean there is a cream-colored marble with blue veins and there are cream-colored beans with veins of blue the causes which have produced these resemblances may doubtless be explained but the singular resemblance itself cannot be explained away. We mentioned in the earlier portion of this letter the Villa of the Medici, which was a favorite resort of the late Grand Duke. We have only just learned, in conversing about this villa, a circumstance which does him great honor. We were not aware that he belonged to the celebrated society of the Misincordia, the Brothers of Mercy. The Brothers of the Misericordia are the Good Samaritans of Tuscany, who give their own personal services to aid the suffering. Many of them belong to noble families. At the sound of the deep, sonorous summoning bell of the Duomo, however, these members may be employed, whether at marriage fest or taking rest, or occupied in the most grave and important duties of their life, if it is their week to serve, they must all leave and hasten to the Piazza del Duomo to present themselves at the oratory of the Misericordia.
Here the brethren pass into the robing room and issue from it into the chapel, clothed in long black robes, with peaked hoods over their heads and faces, leaving their eyes alone visible through two holes cut into the cowl. A large, broad-leafed hat hangs at the back, over the shoulders. They form themselves into pairs, according to their height, and, raising the black-covered litter, prepared to receive the sufferer, walk forth with even, rapid steps, and in perfect silence. The member present, who happens to be the highest in rank in the hierarchy of the order, acts as captain, walks at the head of the procession, and directs all its movements. It is his duty to prepare the apparatus required for the last hurried shrift, should such be needed, of the dying. The crucifix, the candle, the breviary, the holy oil. These are deposited in a box and attached to the litter. The brethren are not permitted by their laws to partake of any refreshment at the house where they receive their human burden, save a glass of cold water. They carry with them a pair of large, clean sheets and a counterpane, and with these they enter the house of the sick. The sheets are dexterously placed beneath the patient, one so as to perfectly envelop him, the other to form a sort of hammock, in which, covered with the counterpane, he is gently borne to the litter. The delicacy and care with which the brethren shield their charge from the public's curious gaze while placing him or her in the litter has often been a subject of comment. The sick person carefully deposited, the litter is raised, and the black muffled cortege proceeds on its way to the hospital. It is the duty of one brother, if the sick person is supposed to be near his last moments, to keep a vigil watch, and from time to time lift the front part of the covering. If he sees any alarming symptoms, he strikes three little blows on one of the poles. At this signal, the bearers immediately set down the litter. The great black covering is thrown aside. The brethren gather round to shield the dying as much as possible from the gaze of the passers-by, and the sacrament is hurriedly administered. The Grand Duke, it is said, was most punctual, earnest, and efficient in discharging all his duties as a member of this holy brotherhood. End of chapter 9